Let me make myself perfectly plain. Plain English is a matter of common sense. It's all about clarity. Using short sentences. Short words, too. They help. The active voice is always preferable. Or so I'm told. I mean, people tell me. Making sure what you write or say is right for the audience. It's simple if you just give it some thought. And that's all, really. Thank you so much for listening, and apologies if this edition of the programme is somewhat shorter than usual. It is an important topic, but that's all I have to say on the matter. Best kept simple. Goodbye. Till next time. Fry's English Delight was presented by Stephen Fry. Uh, yes. Stephen, can you hear me? Yeah, yeah, I can hear you. Stephen, we can't just leave it like that. Well, well thanks, everyone. Yeah, so that's a wrap on that. That's Thank you terrific. very much. That was great. Excellent. Job, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. Um, Oh, I don't know. How do we fill the next... Um, Stephen, I think we're going to have to... Um... Oh, all right. Yes, I suppose there is more to say. I mean, plain, plain. Here's some doubly plain English. While we are here to ensure that you do have a comfortable trip with us today, we're also concerned about your safety. With that in mind, we ask that you take the safety information card out of the seat pocket in front of you. Now, the plainness of that aeroplane safety announcement is very important. That plain, plain English is one of the few pieces of text in our language whose clarity is legally enforced. The information is a matter of life and death, possibly, even if you're a frequent flyer. Still, people are easily distracted, as you perhaps were, because, yes, that's right, the voice you heard was somehow familiar. It was, of course, our own Charlotte Green, now the voice of the football results, once of this very radio parish. Welcome, Charlotte. So, how did that uh, reading feel? Well, I've always had a secret yearning to say doors to manual and stand there in the aisle and do rather elaborate arm gestures and tell everybody where the emergency exits were. So, in a way, that was the next best thing. <laughs> <laughs> and your voice became known to, to a generation like me of Radio 4 listeners, um, both as a news and continuity reader, but also as the reader out in a wonderfully plain way of bizarre misprints or ambiguities on the news quiz. Um, <laughs> and uh, in that sense, it became a trusted voice. So do you think that stopped you from being able to read in other ways? I know various people wrote to me and said, if you announced the end of the world, we would still feel that it was all right because you were reading it. <laughs> so I suppose in a way that is a little bit limiting in that perhaps... It it would be harder to read things in a different way. Of course, it's worth pointing out, isn't it, that there's a difference between clarity and plainness. Yes. I always aimed for clarity when I was reading, because, after all, the listener only has your voice. And if you're trying to get across a story simply and intelligibly, then it needs to be read clearly so that everybody can understand it. That was terribly important, and that's always what I aimed for. The trouble is, English seems of its own accord to defy plainness. Do you tango, Charlotte? Indeed. For example, the timber from a humble London plain tree can be paradoxically beautiful. So I believe, if cut correctly, using the correct plane, though these are homophonic comments. Uh, your tango is excellent, by the way, Charlotte. Very nice head snap. That's very kind of you. Thank you, Stephen. 
Very well then. Plain with an AI. Plain chocolate is always regarded as sophisticated. Odd that. Plain is a pikestaff, they say. Though many people would find it hard to distinguish between a pikestaff and, say, a halberd. Or pole cleaver. Me included. Oh, I love this bit. Actually, isn't plain a euphemism? When applied to human physical attributes, it is. It means, well, ugly, doesn't it? Stephen, isn't this tango business a bit fancy? There is serious work to do linguistically. Okay, okay, you're right. Stop, stop, stop. Thank you for dancing. Thank you. Um, Let us abrogate redundant obfuscation. Let's go back to the importance of plain English, which we all know has nothing to do with chocolate or carpentry, facial ugliness, Iberian precipitation or historical weapons. We all know it when we see it or hear it, where clarity matters. For example, where public money is concerned. In 1979, the BBC reported that well over £300 million of benefits were going unclaimed for linguistic reasons. That was about seven times as much money as the amount people allegedly fiddled from the DHSS. This is the BBC's Grapevine programme in 1979. There are many reasons why people don't claim what they're entitled to, one of them being that claim forms are so hard to make sense of. Many pensioners, for instance, find it difficult to understand and fill in the forms. People like Ethel Owen here in Salford. Hi, Ethel's luckier than some. She's got Chrissy Ma to help her through a jungle of long words and complicated phrases. Chrissy understands the problem well. She couldn't read or write at all until she was 16. <laughs> I knew what it was like to um, lose all your dignity and your pride. To have to ask people how to fill in forms, how to do things, how to go through certain procedures. And I thought, well, if I feel like that, there are many more millions of people like me, then I, you know, I've just got to do something about it. She did. She became a founder member of the Plain English Campaign, a crusade to replace wordy and confusing official forms with language that's simple, straightforward and clear. Chrissy Marr eventually received an OBE for services to language. Chrissy's a founder of the Plain English Campaign, which started because English gobbledygook was doing damage. Over 35 years later, the cause is still alive and Chrissy's still fighting the same battles. If you buy a three-piece suite or a car, a loan, anything like that, anything you're asked to sign your life away with, forms, leaflets, agreements, should be crystal clear. You sign because you want the, the three-piece suite. You sign because you want the car. You sign because you want the house. You know, it's like now on, on screen they say, hey, you can have this so long as you tick the box that says, I've read all the instructions. Nobody reads the instructions. They can't. They just tick the box and get whatever's going. You're asking me to sign my life away to, to say that I agree with what's written. If I can't understand what's written down, how can I do that? Yes, legal documents, instruction manuals, rules and regulations, terms and conditions, online boxes you tick to say you've read and understood. English that matters, practically. We've remarked before that part of the delight of English is the way we can watch it change. It does change, slowly and gradually, like the shape of a coastline, buffeted by diverse and unpredictable gusts of usage and tides of fashion. 
But people who demand or try to decree changes to English are, to put it politely, a bunch of knits. The plain English campaigners, though, are an exception. Uh, the campaign Chrissy Marr started to make language more accessible has changed the way some English is used. All the more extraordinary given Chrissy's personal struggle with literacy and bureaucracy. Chrissy Marr started as a campaigner in Liverpool. This is Tony Marr, Chrissy's son and general manager at the PEC. Chrissy's always been like that. She's always been a get-sorted sort of person. If there's a problem, go to Chrissy, she'll do something about it. And she's never changed. When we were kids, we'd seen everything. We'd been campaigning to make sure that the, the entries were swept clean because there was rats there, all the way through to bringing out the first community newspaper. And she decided to take on the English language. Now, this is from a woman that only learned to read and write when she's about 14, which is incredible, but she's come through the mantra of the campaign is its definition of plain English. Words that you can read, you can understand, you can act on first time. You don't have to humiliate yourself by going asking somebody to, would you interpret that for you, what does that mean? Words that you can read, you can understand, you can act on first time. Brief, elegant, succinct. Not like this local authority, which still wants to... ...establish a framework agreement to create a flexible base of external consultancy expertise to assist with the implementation of its transformation programme and other change projects across the organisation. The framework is intended to provide flexible and agile access to resources in support of the core and additional services identified in the specification. Charlotte, because you said it, there was something very beautiful about it in a weird kind of way, but it, it really didn't mean anything, did it? It didn't. And in fact, I was working my way through it, thinking, where on earth is this going and where is it leading yeah. and what does it mean? This seems to be almost a deliberate barrier between yes. the reader and the words. Hmm. Chrissy Marr, the Plain English campaign. Until we get a law that says anything that I've got to sign my life away to and keep to and abide to, you know, has got to be crystal clear by law. But maybe somebody's listening today to the radio that's in a position to say, that makes sense. Now, you were talking about makes sense. That's simplicity itself. Let's pass a law to say anything that people like Chrissy are asked to sign, to say that we can even understand, first time, it's got to be so. Of course, you know, there is a law which currently requires plain English in government communications. Did you know is, that? I really don't think you're right about that, Stephen. I'm sure there isn't a law. It is in law enshrined that plain English must be used in, in government pronouncements, documents and so forth. I'm genuinely surprised to learn that. Mm, mm, I... It's quite exciting being disagreed with by Charlotte Green, but I'm pretty sure there is one. Um, well, oh, dear, and pass. Uh, well, we're going to, we'll find out later, perhaps. Of course, we could spend an enjoyable few minutes looking at how that law deters officialese, labyrinthine legal language and management speak going forward. Uh, but no, we won't do that, nor will we struggle yet with this worrying and challenging claim from an expert. I think there are gradations of plain English. <laughs> So there are limits to how plain, plain English can be. Now, that's, that's concerning. If plain English isn't an absolute, if there are gradations, nuances, limitations, how can the plain English law, the existence of which Charlotte has surprisingly already disappointingly called into question, how can it function? Words that you can read, you can understand, and you can act on first time. Even act on, not act 
upon. You can save two letters there. Uh, short words, short sentences, the active voice. Charlotte eats the apple, not the apple is eaten by Charlotte. Um, Charlotte, please don't eat apples while we're recording. I'd be very obliged. Thank you. I do apologise. OK. What we want, what we really need is an image, a slogan for what plain English is and does. So, um, cue commercial. Ron Seal. It does exactly what it says on the tin. What you want out of a DIY product is, is just, you know, the truth. This is Liz Whiston, advertising copywriter, whose usefully plain-speaking slogan not only sold wood preserver, it made it into everyday speech. You want to know what it does and you want to be able to understand it in plain English. Suddenly, Sainsbury's home base and various other B&Q, etc., were coming up with own brand varnishes and own brand wood seals, all very sort of beautifully marketed. And Ron Seal, with their honesty, never having advertised before, just couldn't believe why suddenly they were losing market share. People were going for the pretty pictures of the chairs and the flowers and not their lovely tin with a guy holding a brush saying it'll be dry in four hours. The marketing guy said, you know, I'm not going to spend loads of money redesigning all our tins. I've come to you. You tell me what I can do that will actually sell my tins. You tell me how my tins, as they are, can be an advantage for me. So we sort of scratched our head and said, you know, what we really should do is use the fact that the tins have all sorts of instructions on them and tell you exactly what to do and are to the point in our advertising, in the marketing. And so we came up with our line... All together now. It does exactly what it says on the tin. He said I need a little bit of time to think about it. But is it, funnily enough, he said, is it clever enough? And we said, well, it isn't clever. It isn't gimmicky. It doesn't have a pun in it because, you know, you're a bit straightforward and, and kind of we wanted it to reflect you. That word exactly is very important because it's about the preciseness and it's about sort of total honesty. So a big popular thumbs up for some clever plain English that became a byword for honesty, directness and integrity, even appearing in reference books. Someone from the agency phoned up and said, can you believe it, Liz? Your, your line's in the Dictionary of Idioms. It's fantastic to see it in there. Even my daughter the other day came back very excited and told me her teacher had said it in class. And I said, did you say your mum came up with that? And she went, no, no, mum, no. Let's stay with teaching and go back to those gradations of plainness. Earlier, you heard the voice of Professor Colin Harrison, whose job it is to measure text and calibrate it for not plainness exactly, but, but readability. It's an academic area of study whose complex formulae help people analyse text to see how appropriate it is to its intended user. Apply the formula to a newspaper article, an example, examination question, a textbook or set of instructions, and it will tell you the age of the person who should reasonably be able to read and understand it. My starting point was looking at ways in which I could make reading more approachable for kids in school. I started out as a secondary school English teacher who got interested in kids who had reading difficulty, and I ended up working on a national project that was looking at all the different texts that were used in school from age 11 up until age 16. And we were asking the question, how can we make those more approachable? Um, where can we make changes? Where should we not make changes or not recommend changes? It turned out, for example, that in terms of what readability measures try to look at, maths texts aren't terribly difficult. Uh, a readability formula used in the right way is um, 
maybe a slide rule. It's not a computer. A slide rule is, it gives you an approximation. The trouble is, there's more than one formula. That means no gold standard of readability. There are formulae called Dale Chow, Flesh, Flesh Kincaid. There's even one called Fry. Uh, so, an apparent fog of readability formulae, or smog. Colin Harrison. Simple measure of gobbledygook to you and me. It looks trivially simple, but actually it was derived mathematically from looking at lots of texts by someone who took a scientific approach. Uh, but it's as good as most of them. The smog formula, which is used in adult literacy quite a lot, is quite complicated. It's got a square root in it, so it's not easy to work out by hand. But if you put it into a computer, it's done in a fraction of a second. It's looking at two variables, word length and sentence length. Now, it's not the case that every long word is difficult or that every short sentence is easy. However, from a statistical point of view, that relationship holds pretty well. Grammatical complexity and vocabulary. By the way, you'll find plenty of opportunity to run texts through computerised readability tests. We've run the script for this programme through ours, and we can tell you later how plain or readable it is. A lot of time is spent looking at the language of students. What about the language of teaching? Are some texts more difficult than others? Is geography harder for kids in school than mathematics? Is English harder than French? And we're able to give some intelligent answers to that question. The most difficult subject in terms of the language is not science, it's geography. We found more long words and difficult words in geography than other texts. But science has many and... I feel very sympathetic towards science teachers. I don't think we should take all of the long words out of every science text. It wouldn't make sense. Phenolphaline is phenolphaline. It's a long word. If kids know what that uh, compound is, then they can deal with it. There was a, a wonderful piece of research done by a chemistry teacher. He found that if the regular exam question was, which of the following is a pungent gas was replaced by the question which of these gases would make you cough the success rate went from 30 percent to 70 percent with the same kids so the question was did the kids know the word pungent and that wasn't really what the question was supposed to be testing so people look really really closely at the way in which the questions put and the vocabulary you need to have just to answer the question I don't think that knowing the word pungent is crucial to being a good chemist. A pungent example of how understanding a scientific concept is more important than acquiring an item of technical vocabulary. And sometimes the opposite is true. When the English looks plain, both to a readability formula and to a reader, but the concepts behind it are far from it. Maths is difficult because there are difficult concepts... But the prose in maths textbooks is often very simple. And so that appears to be plain English, just like the phrase a black hole in space is very simple English, but it isn't easy to understand. Uh, we could apply those astronomical warnings to English literature. To be or not to be. Precisely. Charlotte's brief tribute to Sarah Bernhardt demonstrates that Hamlet's existential crisis is theoretically decipherable by six-year-olds. And anyone who put 
uh, Hamlet into a readability formula, except for interest, should be shot. If you want to ask the question, is this newspaper really difficult for people who are in adult literacy classes, then that's a good question and a readability formula can give you some answers. When should we use a readability formula? Broadly, a readability formula is used when a text is conveying information. Now, it could be narrative information in a story or it could be information about history in a history textbook. Explanatory prose, texts that were explaining something or describing something, a piece from National Geographic, a newspaper story, or a novel where the nature of the writing is not so different and distinctive as to be different from normal prose. I could get in trouble here, but, you know, I would say, broadly speaking, a page-turner, a station bookstore novel, or now, let's move up one level, an airport bookstore novel, it's perfectly okay to use readability formula on that. You could say using readability formula for any literature is not a good idea. Even the writing famed for plainness of language, like some Hemingway or Graham Greene, for example, has a lot going on below surface level that would defy statistical analysis. Sometimes sniffy literary critics use readable to damn rather than to praise. So let's go back to more functional prose. Let me give you a real-world example. I did some research a few years back with a paediatrician from the Queen's Medical Centre at Nottingham University. It's one of the biggest hospitals in Europe, and this guy was interested in how difficult it was for parents to read some of the literature that was available to them. What he found was that the specialist literature for uh, the parents of children who had Crohn's disease or who had cancer, was not written in a very accessible way. Why was that? The answer was because it was written by parents who'd become specialists in that area, who joined pressure groups, the Crohn's Disease Society and so on. There was another level of text which was government pamphlets written to give parents advice about how they could get extra help or financial resources. Those were on a middle level. The easiest prose to read was the prose for parents of newborn babies trying to get them to buy baby food. But that was written by people in advertising who knew how to communicate, how to communicate simply and how to communicate in plain English. And he said, we need to do something about that. But the readability study was regarded as a really valuable piece of work because it pointed out that the adverts for extra baby food supplements that were full of sugar were easier than the Daily Mirror and the information about serious diseases was more difficult than the Independent, the Times and the Scotsman. In other words, plain English can mask complexity of motive. Ah, well, you see, if there really were a plain English law and you keep suggesting there is, then surely some of those public information leaflets given out by the health service have broken it. Well, you're right. Of course you are. Of course you are. But you're also wrong. (laughs) This is Dennis Barron, Professor of English at the University of Illinois. What the plain English law that was passed in 2010 in the United States does is it says government agencies have to use plain English when they communicate to the public. But the law itself is not written in plain English. The law does not observe its own 
stipulations. This well-meaning piece of legislation is, in fact, a rare example of the law that appears to break itself. It is a complex law. It is written in legalese like any law. The regulations that it advises are things like never use the word shall because shall is a deadly word. People see the word shall and they say, oh, no, I'm not going to be interested in this. And the law itself uses the word shall nine times in a law that's less than a page long. It says, do not use definitions. Definitions will get you into trouble. But the law has a whole section in which it defines its terms. It doesn't do, it says, do what I do, not what I say. It doesn't do what it tells other people to do. So there's uh, an irony here at best. It's not written in plain English. Now, it'd be great if we could get the laws written in plain English, if we could define what plain English is, but in fact, it just doesn't happen. Here's a sample from that law. No provision of this act shall be construed to create any right or benefit, substantive or procedural, enforceable by any administrative or judicial action. In other words, there's no penalty for breaking the law. So you might think not a whole lot of point in having it at all. Plain English is in the ear and the eye of the beholder. It depends on the context. It's not something that's easy to pin down. It's like Potter Stewart's definition of pornography. I can't define it, but I know it when I see it. Fine. We might conclude then that a law demanding that plain English be used when the state talks to the public would be as hard to enforce as laws prescribing pornography. So perhaps we should have stopped after the first minute after all. Left it at that. Common sense. Even our lovely Ron Seal definition got borrowed for a non-wood preservative function in an arena not associated with plainness. It is, if you like, it's a Ron Seal deal. It does what it says on the tin. We said we would come together, we said we'd form a government, we said we'd tackle these big problems, we said we'd get on with it in a mature and sensible way, and that is exactly what we've done. Thus, a robust-seeming metaphor for plainness gets exploited by politicians who are always rather keen on appearing to speak plainly. So we end by warning that people who start a sentence, let me make myself perfectly plain, probably aren't going to. Which is exactly how you started the programme. Oh. Oh, did I? Ah. Uh, well, well, there you go, you see. Um, Please don't let me be misunderstood. Since you're in the studio, Charlotte, be madness not to. Uh, would you be very kind and do the closing honours? Of course. Fry's English Delight was presented by Stephen... Uh, 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 Charlotte, the active voice. Active. Oh, yes, sorry. I'll do it again. Stephen Fry presented Fry's English Delight. I, Charlotte Green, was his guest. Nick Baker produced it. That doesn't sound right to me. It, it had a readability score of 16.7. It was a testbed production for BBC Radio 4. Well, that bit's OK. But I still prefer presented by. And I, Charlotte Green, I mean, that's just weird. Oh, yeah, it, well, it would be if I said it. Um... <laughs> Don't let me be misunderstood. That was the last in the current series of Fry's English Delight.